the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. I greet you with peace. My name is Amin Tais. Welcome to episode 4 of this podcast entitled The World of Islam, Culture, Religion, and Politics. Today, we will continue our journey through the history of Islamic thought. But first, I would like to provide a clarification. As you know, in the last two episodes, we tried to briefly introduce the world of the Near East before and around the time of the rise of Islam. One of the uh, listeners asked the question about how far before Islam are we talking about? That's a great question because the rise of Islam as a religious tradition and a world civilization is grounded in social cultural dynamics and processes that uh, started well before the life of Muhammad and well before the establishment of Muslim empires in the Near East and beyond. Uh, there seems to be a shift in the history of the area we know as the Near East, uh, perhaps going as far back as uh, the start of the first millennium of the Common Era. Here, I prefer to speak in terms of what historians have called the Late Antique Period. It is important to understand that uh, the periodization frameworks that scholars put forward are nothing more than interpretive tools. In other words, we construct uh, these frameworks and impose them on the history of societies. Of course, these constructions are by necessity flawed and sometimes they might even blind us to important continuities in the historical development of this or that area. Especially when uh, periodization schemes made uh, for a particular geopolitical area are imposed on other areas. However, uh, periodization is necessary and is very useful for historians to grasp historical developments that span many centuries. And these uh, periodization frameworks or schemes are of course not arbitrary. Uh, with hindsight, with a keen critical historical sense, and with sound methods, historians are able to find patterns and find characteristics that uh, help them create these abstractions uh, we call periods. So here I speak of the late antique period. Uh, there are disagreements as to when exactly the beginning and end of the late antique period are. Uh, I follow what Princeton historian Peter Brown proposes, which is that the late antique uh, period lasts from about the mid-3rd century of the Common Era to the beginning of the 8th century of the Common Era. So let's say, for our purposes, 200 to 700. I, however, would like to also stress that I do not want to diminish 
the important break uh, that uh, what we call Islam represents in the history of the region. As we discover more of the history of early Islam, we will witness uh, the various ways in which this break is very significant. But for now, uh, let's switch uh, gears and move directly to the topic of today, which is pre-Islamic Arabia. The Islamic tradition came to view Islam as the product of a revelation that Muhammad received from God in Arabia. This is where Muhammad was born and raised. This is where Muhammad preached his message. This is where Muhammad established his community, which most Muslims came to see as the exemplary community to be emulated in all times and places. It is important, however, to note that for the historian, even without taking any kind of uh, extreme revisionist stance, for the historian it is problematic to see the Islamic tradition as primarily the product of Arabia. Now it is certainly very difficult to disregard these Arabian origins of Islam, but we must say that by the time of the death of Muhammad in 632 and the start of the Arab conquests of the Near East shortly after that, there is still no Islamic tradition as we would come to know it later. Islamic law, Islamic theology, Islamic mysticism are uh, in uh, this early period at a very rudimentary stage. It was only slowly and over a long period of time that the main components of the Islamic tradition uh, would uh, devo develop into a full or into full-fledged systems in places like uh, Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, and in the by then changing landscapes of Medina and Mecca, among other urban centers in the Near East. That being said, Arabia still remains very important to what would later become a sophisticated religious tradition. So. What do we know about Arabia before Muhammad? Unlike what many seem to think, this is a very difficult question. Why is this? Um, simply because the sources available to the historian are rare, and the available sources are problematic. Much of what we have comes from later Muslims describing a pre-Islamic Arabia that they define themselves against. What do I mean by that? Not only are the available written sources from a much later period than the events they describe, these sources also come from people who have a narrative about their identity. A narrative about their history that is closely tied to viewing pre-Islamic Arabia as a morally degenerate place 
a place in need of serious reform that the new religion came to take care of. Even the famous muallaqat, uh, the hanging poems from the verb allaqa to hang, apparently because they are said to have been hung on the Kaaba of Mecca, this cube structure we will discuss in a little bit. So even these muallaqat, Arabic poems, that are supposed to represent the best of pre-Islamic uh, Arab poetry, and are supposed to tell us about Arab life before Muhammad, uh, they cannot necessarily be very helpful because of at least two uh, reasons. One is that we only have these poems as presented to us by later Muslim scholars. And the second issue is that even if these uh, qasidas or poems are indeed all authentic, they are not, or the poets who are writing these qasidas are not interested in historical fact. The poems are rather literary, uh, artistic attempts at describing a variety of feelings and uh, social values and human interests, etc. Uh, with all these difficulties in mind, we can try and present a brief introduction to the world of Arabia. Uh, by the way, for those interested in learning more about Arabia, a good start is uh, the book by uh, Robert Hoyland uh, entitled Arabia and the Arabs from the Bronze Age to the coming of Islam. For us here, we will limit ourselves to a brief survey. Let's start from a geographic angle. The Arabian Peninsula is located in the western side of Asia, not too far from the eastern coast of Africa, from which it, uh, it is separated by the Red Sea. Most of Arabia consists of arid areas and deserts with uh, difficult living conditions except for its southern part which receives plenty of rain and in which agriculture is a normal activity. The Romans used to call South Arabia Arabia Felix or Happy Arabia as compared to North Arabia. North Arabia was an area where Bedouin nomads lived, moving around to feed their herds. And by the time of Muhammad's life, there existed a number of settled towns. The social organization was tribal. In this world, an individual only existed as a member of a tribe uh, that is tied by uh, blood, uh, by lineage. The tribe, under the leadership of its sheikh, uh, who was chosen by uh, consultation, shura, among the elders of the tribe. Uh, so the tribe protected its members. Understandably, losing some members of the tribe in this environment had a high price. Uh, it is uh, nothing short of uh, survival. Uh, that is at stake. And then um, they were often conflicts and battles. Uh, to sustain themselves, groups would raid caravans or uh, attack settlements 
uh, to get uh, the goods uh, they, they need. That's why tribal alliances were very important. Um, in these relations and uh, dynamics, uh, Arabs prided themselves in being brave, but also in being generous hosts. Um, great achievements on the battlefield or uh, great generous generosity in hosting and uh, taking care of religious shrines allowed particular families to reach the status of nobles or in Arabic Ashraf. One of the settled towns that would eventually become an important center in the Arabian Peninsula was a place by the name of Mecca. Historians disagree as to why, how, uh, when, or even whether uh, Mecca achieved this status. But for the purpose of this short introduction, we will say that Mecca might have become such a crucial player in the life of Arabia because it housed a religious shrine that grew in importance at the expense of other shrines in the peninsula. The shrine was called the Kaaba, a cube-shaped building that housed a number of tribal deities from all around Arabia. Importantly, there was a season of Hajj, or pilgrimage, in which all feuds and conflicts were put aside, were prohibited around the Haram, the sacred space of uh, the Kaaba, uh, as people from different tribes came to worship their gods. So, um, as you can see, polytheism was the dominant religious perspective, or we might more accurately call it a form of henotheism. Henotheism is to worship a god while acknowledging the existence of other deities. One form of henotheism is to worship particular deities but to recognize the existence of a, high, of a high god above all. This might be the case of the Arabs who worship their tribal deities but, but um, had a conception of a supreme deity, Allah or God in Arabic. What the rise in prominence of this pilgrimage season did uh, also is to raise the status of the Quraysh tribe. The Quraysh controlled and took care of the shrine of the Kaaba uh, in Mecca. In addition, since the pilgrimage and its rather peaceful setting allowed for more trade and economic activity, uh, it is possible that an oligarchy an elite from the Quraysh slowly uh, dominated the wealth of Mecca and uh, ultimately led to a situation with serious socio-economic inequalities. But uh, worshipping tribal deities like the ones that are mentioned in Islamic literature, uh, Alat and Al-Uzza and Manat among others, was not the only religious perspective in Arabia. There were also significant Jewish communities that uh, had long settled in Arabia and who spoke an Arabic slang, Judeo-Arabic, 
and who shared the culture of other Arabs. For instance, there was a strong Jewish presence in and around, in and around an oasis called Yathrib, a name to retain for later developments in the story of Islam. There was also Christian communities. For example, in the oasis of Al-Yamama, there existed a Christian community with Nestorian leanings. Also, in Najran, uh, Monophysite Christianity had a strong presence. Again here, as I stressed uh, in an earlier episode, we have to keep in mind that the worldview and practices of the average member of a Jewish or Christian community um, are usually a mix of local religious beliefs and of some kind of understanding of the high traditions of the theologians and rabbis. It is equally important to understand that all these people lived in a world saturated with supernatural beliefs and with supernatural beings that were perceived to be an integral part of everyday life, regardless of what religion one, uh, what religion um, uh, one adhered to. An example here is the uh, being known as jinn an invisible supernatural creature believed to have powers that can affect daily life. People sought uh, the help of the jinn through sacrifices and other means. And one of the activities in which people believe jinn to be an integral part of is poetry, uh, an art uh, that the oral culture of the Arabs greatly valued. Poets were believed to each possess a companion jinn, uh, iqarin in Arabic, helping them recite beautiful poetry verses. Um, we can't uh, temporarily close uh, this window of religious perspectives without mentioning the figure of the Hanif, plural uh, Hunafa who are presented by Muslim sources as these individuals adhering to a pure monotheism. They apparently were not Christians and they were not Jews, but viewed themselves as the inheritors in a very general way of the teachings of Abraham, in Arabic Ibrahim. This important biblical uh, figure who is perceived by Jews as the ancestors of all Israelites uh, through his son Isaac. The, the Hunafa presented themselves as restoring Abraham's pure monotheism in their lives as Arabs. Uh, and since uh, it, and it, this, is, this is mainly because um, or perhaps because it was widely circulated among Arabs as well as among other people in the Near East that the Arabs also descended from Abraham through his other son uh, Ishmael uh, in Arabic Ismail. Um, to finish, um, we also uh, need to mention the relation of Arabia to the two dominant empires of the time the Iranian uh, Sasanian Empire and the Byzantine Roman Empire. 
as I mentioned in an earlier episode, these two uh, sort of superpowers of the region were in constant conflict and often took uh, land from each other in their various battles. But uh, for uh, one reason or another, neither empire sought to conquer Arabia. Instead, they used uh, Arab tribes in, northern, in North Arabia as uh, buffer kingdoms to limit intrusion. The Byzantine employed the tribe of Ghassan, the Ghassanids, while the Sasanians employed the tribe of Lachm, the Lachmids. There are a lot of interesting questions that can be raised about these kingdoms and their influence on the race of Arabia, given their strong contact with the sophisticated cities of the empire. Um, but uh, we will end this episode here, and we will continue our journey on the next episode as we discuss the life of Muhammad in white in what might be the uh, most challenging task in this survey of the history of Islamic thought. I will tell you why, so please uh, join me again next time. And until then, I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.